I'm Andrew Zaki. This is the From the Pews podcast, where we have conversations about truth, culture, love, and power from a Christian perspective. The following is a conversation with Father Carolos Ibrahim, a priest at St. Paul American Coptic Orthodox Church, lecturer in dogmatics and orthodox spirituality at the St. Athanasius and St. Cyril Coptic Orthodox Theological School, and author of All That I Have Is Yours, A Hundred Meditations, with St. Pope Carolus VI on the spiritual life. that I have is yours, a hundred meditations with St. Pope Carolus VI on the spiritual life. Why did you write this book and why now? Oh, it's a very good question. So I would say the idea originally started um, after several years of posting stories about St. Pope Carolus on Facebook um, maybe starting about 10 years ago, I, I sort of made it uh, my way of contributing to um, giving my generation and the generation after me, as well as introducing non-Coptic Orthodox uh, Christians to um, this great modern saint of our church. And so I started posting stories in English, and I started to uh, receive a lot of really positive feedback from people all over the world who, who, you know, who spoke to me or messaged me about how impactful those stories were and sort of in looking forward to those stories on a daily basis. And some people started to suggest maybe compiling those stories in, in a volume, um, which I didn't really feel that there would be much value in just sort of a compilation of stories. Mm -hmm. So th it then sort of evolved into the idea of maybe something like a, a daily devotional, something that might aid someone in their prayer life um, where, you know, you'd have, you know, a hundred or 365 uh, entries where, where you could have, you know, a story from the life of the saint sort of inspire us through this modern example of holiness. Um, and then, you know, the idea of, of using the egg bay as sort of the structure, um, you know, to also introduce, um, people to the use of the Psalms, the Psalter in, in their prayer life, if they're not already accustomed to using it. Um, and then on top of that, the idea of a sort of separate spiritual meditation on a, on a variety of spiritual topics. So it, it sort of came together um, in, in over the years. And I never really had the intention of actually sitting down and writing a book. But mm -hmm. back in January, I um, I was isolating myself after I, you know, I was, I tested positive for COVID and, you know, even though I had very mild symptoms, but I was sort of locked up for, you know, 15 days in my, in my room. And I took advantage of that time to really sort of organize my thoughts around, um, the structure of the book. Mm -hmm. And, uh, then the idea, this was in January of this past year. So, um, in February I finished writing the book and, we pushed to have it edited and published before the 50th anniversary of the saints, um, you know, um, anniversary of his departure. Uh, and we were able to publish it, I think three or four days before his feast day. Yeah. So it all sort of came together really nicely yeah. uh, by the grace of God. That's a, that's a really quick turnaround from January to having it published in March. So did you start, writing your first meditation at that point or did you already have a you know a, a bunch of them already that you've been working on right 
So the, the stories, again, I had been compiling them for many, many years. So I had I had more than enough to choose from. And so what I what I did was I, I edited the, the stories um, and I chose predominantly the stories that involved the saint when he was alive. So not not sort of the, the stories of people having just visions of the saint or miracles that happened after his repose, but more I wanted to emphasize the encounter, the encounter between the saint when he was alive and his people, you know. Um, and and so th- so there was just really a matter of editing those stories and, and selecting them. The meditations, I did sort of just sit down and start writing them at the end of January, beginning of February, and just sort of dedicated several weeks to knocking wow. them out. Wow. Um, of course, having having you know fifteen years of, of priesthood <laughs> right. and and homilies that, that I have you know notes from yeah, yeah. helped me to you know create sort of a, a list of subjects that I could draw from, okay. and and I wanted to have you know a hundred separate topics related to the spiritual life without being repetitive, which was a challenge, of course. But, um, you know, I think, thank God, um, we were able to achieve that. And for those who don't know the structure, it's, it starts with a short quote from a psalm and then uh, the encounter story and then your meditation. Um, that structure, um, was that inspired from something, something you read, another daily devotional? I've seen, because I've seen a 365-day devotional, which is like a Bible verse and then a, a story a, a story from the Paradise of the Fathers. And I don't think it has a meditation. I think it's just those two, maybe. Yeah. Um, so not really. I mean, I do have some, some, you know, some books that are, would be sort of in that genre of devotionals, mm-hmm. you know, so I had a sense of, maybe the length of, of each entry, you know, how many words I wanted each meditation to be. Um, but the structure really more came about just, um, you know, thinking about, well, how many entries, you know, how many, how many, how many chapters um, should I, you know, attempt to write? And so I, I started the, you know, I'm of course central to the spirituality of St. Pope Carlos VI is the use of the Psalms. Um, so I had the idea of, um, for each day or for each entry, having something from the Psalms. But then I just sort of, you know, uh, went through the Igbay and, and said, you know what, let me count and see, you know, if I take all of the Psalms from the first hour all the way through the midnight hour, um, you know, could I structure mm-hmm. the book that way? Um, and that way I would, you know, in a sense also be promoting the use of our book of hours, the Egbeya, um, as part of this um, devotional or as part of this um, sort of daily uh, meditation. And so it worked out, you know, you take the first hour, you have the 19 Psalms of the first hour, and then, you know, the 12 uh, Psalms for the third, sixth, ninth, 11th, mm-hmm. and 12th. And then for the midnight hour, I took, you know, the, the long Psalm, Psalm 118, which is is already broken out into the 22 parts or the 22 stanzas um and i took those as separate entries and the rest of the psalms of the midnight hour are essentially re- re- repeating psalms that were prayed in earlier hours so when you take all of those it ends up being about you know 101 psalms i added psalm 50 as the introductory psalm so mm-hmm. so actually there's 102 entries, even though the book says 100 meditations, but you get two bonus chapters. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you write this book and in a matter of a few months, and now it's time to publish. Did you decide to publish through Acts, or was that a decision that you made, or just kind of just, uh, hey, you're in our diocese, you got to publish through us? That's uh, a good question. I, <laughs> I have no experience uh, writing editing or publishing. So all mm-hmm. of this was very new and very intimidating for me. And it was not something that I ever thought was sort of my talent or my gift. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I had been encouraged by his grace, Bishop Carolus, uh, one of the general bishops, auxiliary bishops here in the diocese of Los Angeles to write something about Pope Carolus. I think we both have just discussed over the years, our shared love for the saint. And so I think he was aware that over the years I had been, you know, speaking a lot about the saint in, in different homilies and talks, and I'd been posting these stories on Facebook over the years. So he had he had been encouraging um, 
you know, something to be published about the saint. And uh, so it was natural, natural for me to go to him first. Mm -hmm. And of course, when I submitted the idea to him, he was really the one who encouraged us to, you know, publish it very quickly in, in, um, in time for his 50th anniversary. I, I, I thought, okay, if I'm writing this in February, you know, we, we probably have eight months to a year before it's edited and then, you know, mm -hmm. published. Uh, but his grace was very um, optimistic of actually getting it done before his feast. And by the grace of God and through the prayers of the saint, uh, we were, we were able to, to get it out on Amazon. I think it was the, his feast day this last year on the 50, his 50th anniversary was, I think on a, a Tuesday, I believe. And the book was published the Thursday before, if I, if I remember correctly. Okay. So, and do you know, uh, do you know how many copies of the book have sold to date? Publisher to, to begin with and, and, you know, and so his grace was, was the one who really encouraged it to go that way. Okay. So Pope Carolus is obviously very important to you. Um, would you, would you consider him like on your, you know, Mount Rushmore of, of Coptic saints? If you had one, is, is he yeah, there? Of course. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's a bit of a personal um, story in my life. Um, I don't know how much time we have. I mean, just very briefly, um, you know, I, I grew up in the church, but, pretty much from my junior high and high school and during my junior high and high school years, I drifted far from the church. And, um, and when I was away at college in my first year of college, and I was going through, you know, sort of a spiritual crisis, if you will, um, what some might call an existential crisis um, and really kind of at a crossroads in my life and, and, and asking a lot of those, really deep essential questions that we all at some point ask, you know, what's the purpose of my life or, you know, what, what is the meaning of truth? Is there life after death? You know, what is the purpose of all of this? And during that struggle, I was sent, um, this was back in 1989. I was a freshman in college. Um, I was sent the first volume of the, the life and miracles of Pope Carlos VI that had been published in English. And at that time, having been sort of far away from the church for so many years, I had never heard of him. I mean, I think I recall, you know, my dad having a picture of him on his desk at home, but never, you know, thinking twice about who is this person. Um, and I, I was very much just struck by his image on the cover of that, um, of that book. And that image is actually in the, in the, in the, in the introductory pages of, of my book. Mm -hmm. It's that black and white sketch of him sort of, you know, just the um, the picture of his of his face with the um, with the um, the patriarchal sort of throne uh, um, on his head, um, the crown, I should say. And you know, I think I was just curious more than anything. Well, who is this person? What are they talking about? Miracles and and what, what year I was, is this? This was back in 1989. 1989. Yeah. So his popularity hadn't hadn't been. Had it come to the States? Was he popular here at that time? Or I think or... for the people who lived in Egypt, of course, mm -hmm. they had known and, and the stories of his miracles were already being published in Arabic. But for English speakers and for, you know, youth of my generation, we knew nothing about him. Mm -hmm. um, I certainly hadn't, hadn't heard of him or, you know, and and just opening that that book and reading, you know, through some of the stories I was overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed with, with a sense of God's love and God's presence and his proximity to humanity through this saint. And I was, I was captivated by the idea that somebody had lived in our generation and my parents' generation and had such a close relationship with God and, and, you know, and God had used to, to do such mighty deeds, you know, um, to not just hundreds, but thousands of people. And I think just that notion of God's proximity and the intensity of that love was something that hit me very hard. And I went through, you know, a, a, a sort of 
you know, period of repentance. I, I remember that that week that I read that book, I, I cried a lot and I, I um, sort of turned my life around. And, you know, that's sort of what brought me back into the life of the church. Since that time, of course, uh, he's been my patron saint. He's been, you know, he's, he's the source of my repentance. And um, so he's been my intercessor ever since. And I've always sort of, as a, as, a, as a matter of gratitude to the saint for what he did in my life, I promised that I would make his name known to my generation and the generation after. And so that's, you know, kind of how the stories on Facebook started and, um, and ultimately this book okay. is part of that. I hope a small contribution for that. I want to I want to get into those stories because they obviously had a profound impact on you. I did always see you post about them regularly on Facebook. I wondered, I always wondered just where did you get these stories from? Is there is is there a book like a one central book with all these stories in English before before your book was published? Uh, Not one or, central book. I mean, unfortunately, uh, you know, um, dozens of pamphlets here and there that have been published, a lot of them anonymously. Um, some of them uh, I received through, um, you know, individuals that encountered them, mm -hmm. um, who, who shared them with me. Um, so unfortunately, no, not from, you know, not from, not from a single source or not even from, you know, a few sources, but just, I think anytime anything was ever published in English about the saint, I tried to get my hands on it. And so I have, you know, over the years just collected them and, um, you know, rewritten them, trying to just sort of edit them to make them more, um, you know, readable to the English speakers and so on. Some of them have been translated, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, very few of them are, are you know, um, are stories that are personal to me, you know. Yeah. Is, there, is there a verification process with, with the, the sources or the stories that you gather? Uh, it's a good question and, and others have asked that and you know um i guess it depends on what you mean by verification i think most of these booklets have passed through the hands of um who i consider to be probably the most authoritative and reliable source on the life of saint pope rule VI, which is his living disciple today abuna rafael of amina mm -hmm. um and so um you know, all, I, most of these stories all passed through him at one point, either in Arabic or, you know. Um, I guess in terms of what I mean by verification is not really uh, like the veracity of it, because, you know, that that's a huge endeavor. But more, uh, I notice a lot of these stories, maybe at least in your book, are the encounters uh the people are anonymous so yes yeah, that's you, on purpose do, do you, i, I okay, removed so, the names yeah okay so you remove the names but when you yeah. get the stories you know they like, have this, this is a legitimate person yes. uh, oftentimes lived. the names and the addresses even the addresses are associated with the with the miracle or with the encounter okay. i removed all of those because i i uh, wanted it to be more again sort of um about the reader, you know, not getting sort of bogged down in the details, um, you know, but, but really focusing on, on the saint, mm -hmm. focusing on the virtues that are um, revealed through the encounter. And of course, leading us to the encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I, 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 mm -hmm. I view all of these stories as sort of a, you know, uh, a sign of, of how our encounter with God should be, you know, that the saint is another expression of Christ on the earth through his love, through his counsel, through his forgiveness, through his kindness, through his mercy, through his, um, you know, um, fatherhood, you know, all of these um, signs that we see in the encounters are meant to sort of help us, you know, then, or lead us to that encounter with Christ and find those things in its perfection in him. And I, I noticed you used the word encounter, and I saw this in another interview or, or talk that you did, that um, not all of these are, 
miracles per se. They're not miracle stories, not all of them. And one of them that jumps uh, in my mind is the, the falafel story. Um, I don't yeah. know if, if that's enough yes, to, yes. for you to remember, but basically, yeah. uh, from you wanted what to I make remember, the man happy by uh, ordering yeah, falafel from him. It, yes. Yeah, so he orders falafel from him, and uh, his, I guess, his uh, whoever's accompanying him whispers to him, "Hey, we have this huge feast or whatever ready for you." He says, "No, I'll, I'll eat this falafel." So, I mean, there's no, there's no real miracle there, I guess. Um, right. um, so why why do you include a story like that? And generally, how do you how did you decide? I imagine you had much more than a hundred stories to choose from. What was your, what was kind of your process and thinking for which which? How did you curate the stories that you wanted in the book? Sure. So again, I think um, the first criteria was that I I with the exception of maybe just a couple of the stories, I wanted them to all be stories that happened when the saint was alive. Um, and the, and then secondly, I wanted, uh, that the story reflected some virtue, uh, or some aspect of, of, of the character of the saint that goes beyond just the miraculous sort of, you know, um, amazement that, that, you know, a miracle story, you know, uh, conjures for the reader. Um, I think, I'll be honest, I think some people who, who have been critical of, uh, and I have received some critical comments, not from not necessarily about the book, but even just posting over the year stories on Facebook, some people have commented, even clergy, uh, that, um, oh, you know, we don't need miracles, we just need faith, and people are running after miracles. And, and my comment is, I think you're missing the, the story then, because the miracle is there, yes, oftentimes the miracle is there, but if you don't see beyond the miracle to, you know, again, the, the characteristics of the saint himself or sort of the, the, um, the beauty of the encounter, you know, I mean, to me, this story, for example, of the, the man who, who makes falafel, right? I mean, it's a beautiful encounter of this humble, this humble falafel, um, you know, sandwich maker in the midst of, you know, a throng of a crowd of people, and, you know, and sort of the, the patriarch's entourage who are telling him that there's this big feast being prepared for him. And there's just this beautiful encounter between this very humble patriarch and this humble man who makes falafel. And, and the patriarch finds great pleasure in re- giving, you know, rejoicing the heart of this falafel, uh, you know, food stand uh, owner um, or a restaurant owner. Yeah. And... And to me, there's the, if you if you if you don't if you don't see the beauty in that, right, and you just focus on the fact that you know, I mean, there is an, a miraculous aspect to it in that he knew, you know, he said it seems like you make falafel, so he knew, you know, by the mm-hmm. gift of, of the spirit that uh, you know he had that gift of clairvoyance. But if you just look at that and say, oh, it's just another you know like uh, story of of a miracle of clairvoyance, again, I think you're missing what I'm, what I'm hoping the reader will, will capture or, or, yeah. Do you think that criticism actually is even valid that um, this is this, these kind of stories might uh, keep people focused on miracles and and chase miracles. I I think I kind of see the opposite problem in the modern uh, day where people, are overly skeptical of miracles, don't care about miracles. I mean, the first thing they think isn't, oh, let me, let me go use some holy oil. I'm sick. You know, I, I don't think, I think I'm kind of seeing the shift in a different direction. I don't, I don't know if you, you agree or disagree. Uh, no, I, I, I agree with you. I think the problem is, is a, is it's a matter of extremes. And I think in, in, Perhaps some of the clergy in Egypt, again, I, I never really served as a clergyman in Egypt, so, but f- perhaps some of the clergy in Egypt see that there is this overemphasis on, on miracles and that people mm. are sort of, you know, running after miracles and, and, and that, that somehow waters down the faith of what's really essential in, in our um, spiritual life. And so I can understand that. I think the answer is not to go to the other extreme, right? And then, which is to deny the miracles and to, to deny that 
that God has raised up saints of our generation that that do mighty deeds in his name. But it's to educate. I mean, our 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 job should be to educate our people on how to make use of um, you know, the the exploits of the saints and the miracles and you know, and if there's an extreme on, on one end, you know, it's our role as clergy and as a church to educate, you know, the, the, the people on the proper place of the saints and the church, icons, relics, miracles, um, sacrament, the sacraments, you know, and so on. So I think you're right, though, in the West, um, we could have, you know, we, we went to another extreme, you know, which is a sort of denial of the supernatural. And I think, you know, I would, I'll go out on a limb and say, you know, if somebody is, um, you know, scientifically inclined to try to find proof of the supernatural, uh, if, if one just dedicated enough time to studying this one saint, you know, and verifying you know, the thousands of supernatural occurrences and miracles with just this one person, you would have enough sort of empirical scientific evidence to prove the supernatural. Like there's no doubt in my mind, you know? Um, So in that sense, I agree, you know, and I think Father Rafael of Amina in a recent interview with the uh, Dawud Lamey, he defended, he defended the, uh, the importance of miracles, you know, and he spoke about in Acts chapter four, the apostles are praying. They're saying, Lord, you know, as you send us out to, to the mission field, you know, give us the power to do signs and wonders, you know, that'll help us to sort of, that'll pave the way for us to preach the word and people will receive the word. So, you know, miracles and the supernatural signs um, and wonders that have always existed since the time of Christ in the church through the experience of the saints and, and through the, the ordinary lives of, of Christian people are part of our faith. You know, again, we have to educate ourselves on, you know, the proper context and uh, priorities. But I think, you know, the two extremes are, are dangerous. Do you, do you still believe that in the supernatural, the miraculous is, is just as present now as it was in uh, the time of Pope Carlos? I mean, I think for sure the, the Lord has not stopped, you know, to, to provide his people with signs and wonders. Um, and it's not just in our church, but in all the Orthodox churches, even in, in the Catholic experience, the Catholic church experience, there are lots of um, modern saints and there are lots of um, experiences of, of individual people that are very supernatural um, kinds of experiences. Um, there are, you know, some tangible things that, that um, exist in our church and in other churches, like, you know, weeping icons. Um, what about, the, what about living persons? Is there like a living person now uh, who, you know, I imagine after some years being patriarch, people were like, okay, this man is a wonder worker. And then all these stories, you know, hey, you have this, go sure. to the cathedral, he'll do this and that. Is there, is there anyone like that now? Or um, no, I just a good don't know about the West. I think for sure there are some examples of what we call wonder-working saints, of which I think St. Pocorolis certainly qualifies to be a wonder-worker, who have a sort of intensity of spiritual gifts. You know, when you look at sort of the supernatural gifts that he had, you know, healing, clairvoyance, bilocation, um, casting out demons, prophecy. I mean, really like uh, almost all of the the long list of supernatural kinds of gifts that that we've come to know in the church, almost all of them resided in this one person. Um, I think that's unique. You know, I think there are definitely individuals who have the gift of, in the church today, who have the gift of casting out demons, you know, as, mm-hmm. as a charismatic gift, you know, there are people who prophesy, there are people who have visions, you know, who have relationships with, with the saints. Um, yes, I, the, absolutely, those people exist in the church. But to find somebody who really sort of has all of those gifts right. like, at the level and the intensity that someone like St. Pocorolis VI had, you know, I'm not aware of somebody in our church right now who has that, but, 
is it's it possible is, they're up in the mountains somewhere <laughs> it's, yeah is it wrong to to see a saint like pope carolos and he has all these these talents that you you just you just listed and think man i just want one of those is 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 that is yeah, it no, I'm glad is, you asked is it wrong question. just to think that i think that's kind of natural yes. that people you know i would love to have clairvoyance yes. i mean i think <laughs> i think it is wrong i'll tell you why i think mm-hmm. um these gifts are are not meant as sort of personal rewards you know that the lord gives to us for you know our personal you know um successes and being holy that's not the point the point of these gifts is the building up of the body of christ it's it's again it's what the apostles asked for so that they could preach the word so that they could build up the kingdom of god on earth through the preaching of the gospel so so these kinds of gifts are not given just sort of as you know individual um recognition awards nor are they you know to just sort of you know grant sort of um, you know, these spiritual consolations so that we can just really enjoy um, them at a personal level, but they're, they're meant to be for other people, you know? And so you look at someone like St. Pope Carl VI, he had health problems. He ultimately died of a heart attack. He had blood clots that he suffered with for many years that, you know, were very painful. He didn't heal himself, mm. right? These gifts were not given to him for himself. They were given to him for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what you find sort of across the board with, with people who are gifted with these, with these talents, these spiritual talents is that they're not for them. They're for Mm. others. And, and I think the Lord entrusts them to individuals like St. Pope because of their humility, you know, because these are people who are so humble that these gifts will not ultimately destroy them. Because if you put these gifts in the hands of somebody who has an ego or, you know, or who is self-righteous or who uses them to control people, you know, um, they're very dangerous. So I think it is, I think, of course, and the, you can look at the examples of the desert fathers, they were always sort of hesitant, you know, to accept visions or visitations from saints or angels or, or, you know, supernatural, like, uh, or charismatic gifts of healing and casting out demons, because they were worried about what those gifts might do to them in terms of you know, losing their, their humility. And so I think it's, um, you know, the gifts that we want are the gifts that lead us to eternal life, you mm-hmm. know, which is the gift of love and, you know, the fruits <clears throat> of the spirit and, you know, and to um, grow in our communion and unity with Christ. Those are, those are the things that we need. If the Lord blesses somebody in his church with a supernatural gift for the building up of the church, that's, again, to be accepted with gratitude, but mm-hmm. it's again, never, never to be seen sort of as this, again, sort of personal um, talent or award. But um, one of the common things I, I noticed in the stories was Pope Carolos would seem most of the time let the person know that he knew why they were even coming to him and maybe even address them by name. Um, why did why did he do that? Why didn't he just um, help them with their problem? What do you, what do you and some I mean sometimes he would do it kind of in a tongue in cheek way, um, mm-hmm. just 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 kind of being humorous. But sometimes um, it didn't well, seem that I, way. Why 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 do you think he did that? I my personal um, opinion is that he when he does that he. He reveals to the person that, you know, the Lord is is present. The Lord is involved. The Lord is the one who is revealing, you know, the reality of what's happening in this person's life to the Pope, to the saint. And so it, it opens up the person's heart to be receptive. You know, mm-hmm. if somebody comes to me and, and, you know, and I simply give advice, they might take it as just human advice. You know, they might just take it as this is my opinion. But when the person is convinced that this person is speaking by the power of the Holy spirit, you know, then they're attentive and they're obedient and they're, you know, more likely to, to understand that this is really a visitation of grace for them from the Lord and not just again, a human encounter with, with a patriarch or a Bishop. So that's perhaps how I would look at it. Another commonality in these encounters was, 
most of them seemed spontaneous there it wasn't like a, they someone scheduled an appointment you know they were uh, going to his office or during some kind of uh, church service um that kind of accessibility was that was that something that he welcomed was it just a matter of the time things weren't as busy because uh, i think there's something special about that in and of sure. itself um uh, what are your thoughts on that yeah i think it's i think both i think at, at the time you know when you when you when you go back historically the the pope was was at the cathedral the old cathedral um every day you know unless he was in alexandria or in the monastery he was at the cathedral every day praying the, the morning liturgy uh meeting with the people back um, downstairs for the evening service the the vesper service meeting with the people and just sort of re repeating that cycle and so he was very accessible and in those days you know when you look at some of those old pictures even when you look at some of the pictures of of him praying the divine liturgy in the cathedral just take take notice of how big the orban size is you know mm. it's very small mm. you know so here you you have the patriarch praying the divine liturgy in the cathedral on a weekday and he's using you know a, a five inch <clears throat> or a three inch orbana because there's just not that many people that are there so it wasn't until after i think saint pope Carolus the sixth during the, the times of pope shenouda that you know the, the the thousands of people wanted access to the patriarch and and you know so it was a completely different situation so he was accessible um and it was you know i i know people who uh, one person in particular, the, a lady that um, reposed about five years ago, who was very close to him, and I've, many of my stories include her without her name. Her name was um, Samira Doherty, and uh, and she would, you know, sometimes two or three times a week, she would go to the cathedral and, and meet with him. She would just go wow. find him, you know, wow. and it was just that accessible. The second point is, is that he wanted to be accessible to his people. You know, he wanted to make that personal contact with the people and their problems you know he wanted he wanted he encouraged them to there's a wonderful article called uh you know uh, i think it's called pope uh Kirillus the sixth uh, mystical and practical um that was published uh, some years ago uh, where the author you know makes the the point that you know his method of sort of revitalizing the the life of the church in those days was you know, through the liturgical prayers that he offered um, morning and in, in, in evening every day and sort of encouraging people to come to the church, to come to the cathedral or to any of their local parishes, you know, pray the early morning divine liturgy before they go to work, you know, or come to the church and pray the Vespers prayers before they go home. Um, and so he, he, he very much, I think, encouraged that um, contact with with the people through the, liturg the the liturgical context. It was always in the context of finding him at the service, you know. Or you, you find a lot of the stories that he's going around with the censer, you know. So many right. of the stories are him going around the church with the censer and, and interacting with somebody. Or he he's in, he's in the altar and somebody goes and speaks to him or takes his blessing, you know. Or he's giving out the baraka at the end of the liturgy. And he, you know, he has an encounter with somebody yeah. or it's the, you know, during the, the midnight praises or the Vespers. So again, sort of tying together this contact of, uh, with the people through the, the liturgical context of, of the, the cycle of the church's services. Um, and so that's why, you know, some people criticized him for, well, all you, you know, you just every day you're in church. That's not what the patriarch should be doing. But he obviously was inspired and thank God he was inspired because he really sort of, again, revolutionized the, the, the church um, and brought in a, a new era um, to the church through his, through his method and through his, uh, you know, his, his uh, interactions with the people. And I think this kind of highlights something um, in the history of the church. There's kind of, in my opinion, like two schools of thought on the church's role in society and even, you know, obviously the patriarch's role um, by proxy. One is kind of the church's, you know, strictly a spiritual you know, institution 
no political interest, uh, clergy shouldn't participate in the political arena. And the other is that the church um, should be active in the political arena and, you know, engage in, you know, society at large. In my opinion, I think Pope Carolos VI kind of represents that former school of thought. And, you know, as a result, he, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, he wasn't really um, out there, you know, meeting with politicians and doing all this kind of stuff, which obviously takes away your time from, uh, you know, your, your duties to yeah. your, your direct responsibility. I'm not saying those things aren't uh, beneficial to your, your flock, but um, it's, it's kind of less, less direct, obviously. Sure. I mean, I think, uh, of course, St. Pope Carlos VI was very unique in that he he relied so much on the power of prayer, again, to the chagrin of many who, who thought he should do more, you know, and so he, he relied on his tears at the altar to solve many of the political and social problems of his people. Um, and that, and that, of course, history shows you know, was successful, you know, he, he opened um, many doors with President Gamal Abdel Nasser um, through that um, method of, of relying, trusting in God through in the power of prayer. You know, he did his part, obviously, he, he had he had strong relations with the government, he, he had strong relations with the president, he had strong relations with the um, with the uh, the chief, um, you know, Muslim sheikh, like from the Al Azhar, um, and they often exchange visits, and they they often try to do joint, um, you know, statements or or, um, you know, addressing some of the the social ills of the country together in a sort of unified way. So he wasn't, you know, completely, you know, aloof from, right. you know, what was taking place at the level of the society or the nation, but. But he definitely, you know, trusted more in the power of prayers than in, you know, in, in speaking or in, um, you know, sort of maneuvering in a political way or um, strategizing in that sense. So he was definitely unique. But maybe in, maybe in terms of the metrics, you know, people look at now, which is like, how many, how many, how many churches were built? How many uh, new monks were ordained? How many... Um, you know, youth centers were developed, yada, yada. Do you think he, he was like uh, cognizant and was like, and I know this isn't the subject of your book, mm. um, but, but just, uh, you know, if you can comment on it, uh, was this something he, you know, he was like actively, you know, where, where we kind of expect that from the patriarchs now and, and the bishops that these are their priorities. They're, they're, they're working on these tangible things. Is that, is that something he, do you, you think he was like, you know, I focused think, on. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure m many others can speak much better on this point, but I think his focus was 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 more um, on the spiritual lives of his people. Um, you know, and I think he came into uh, a church that was sort of badly beaten up through the centuries of sort of um, you know. Uh, scandals and uh, a sort of you know coldness to the liturgical life of the, of the church you know most churches were not praying vespers you know midnight praises were not being prayed um, it was very uncommon for a bishop to pray liturgy except on sunday or friday you know this whole idea of like daily liturgies was something kind of unheard of maybe outside of the monasteries mm -hmm. so i think his his priority again was was more you know, to 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 create a revolution, a spiritual revolution in the hearts of the people, by being a shepherd to them. You know, by by again by having that contact with them, um, that you know really changed people's hearts and and drew people back into the life of the church. I think that was more important to him than sort of the the structures and the statistics and. Um, committees and things like that. I mean, he mm -hmm. was, he was more narrowly, I think, focused on, you know, sort of, you know, recapturing the place of Christ in the hearts of his people. Yeah. And well, he, and he was a delegator, right? Isn't, isn't this part of the reason he, 
he formed essentially the general bishop offices without jurisdiction for different you know functions education for example you think i mean you think that was part of the reason that he he didn't want to uh, kind of focus on those types of things and and instead yeah. delegate it because that, that, that was that was a pretty big reform wasn't it like sure sure i mean you know not just delegating um you know sort of episcopal tasks but you know even you know thinking about um you know preaching the 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 homily at the at the divine liturgy you know we have we have no recorded homilies of the patriarch uh, he didn't preach mm-hmm. not because he couldn't uh, he was very well educated in 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 the patristics and the ascetical tradition of the church and the scriptures as attested to by some of his early writings as a monk um and and just through the spiritual guidance that he gave people uh, more one-on-one but but he delegated you know and, and there are stories of 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 him you know weeping as uh as he's attending the homily of a simple priest who's preaching in the presence of the patriarch hmm. you know and he just put himself as one of the people listening to the homily and was was moved by the words of the priest and you know oftentimes w- would be found weeping um so you know it's it's a it's something that we can't even imagine today you know right, uh, right, since the, right. the times of pope shenouda the third and and since then um so i think he he just led by example he led he led by example through his silence through his humility through his reliance on prayers um and he left a lot of these other tasks to people that he trusted you know and so yes he did delegate many many things again not because he wasn't capable of doing them he was more than capable of doing them but because he i think had a, again a more narrow focused and a more narrowed focus of where he thought he could make the greatest mm-hmm. impact mm-hmm. and thank god he did you know yeah. sort of think that way because we see the fruits of it yeah some people uh, there is there is some controversy surrounding the the idea of a general bishop and what comes with that uh them being um kind of uh, an option for uh, the papacy yeah. yeah is that is that a settled issue in, within the church yet or is this still kind of a, a dividing line my i think now it's probably a settled issue mm-hmm. uh i think definitely at the time that uh you know at the time of when um bishop shenouda was was being um, nominated, there was there was a lot of conversation in the church, and there were many who who were writing in favor or against the idea because it was it was somewhat of a new idea. I think um, with the success of the papacy of Pope Shenouda the Third of Blessed Memory, um, the feeling has sort of shifted to, you know, that the. Um, I mean, well, even even after the the repose of of uh, Pope Shenouda the Third, there was a discussion within the church as to whether the the papacy should be opened up to even diocesan bishops. Mm, and there was wow. a huge debate about that. At the end, the church decided to to sort of stick with the traditional canons, which you know understood that a diocesan bishop was not to be moved from his diocese. You know, and in, you know he was sort of married to his diocese until death. Whereas an auxiliary bishop or a general bishop is not does not have that same association with the diocese, you know. So the the main reasons for the canons against a diocesan bishop becoming the patriarch don't really apply to an auxiliary bishop, you know. So, for example, we have uh, two auxiliary bishops in in the diocese of Los, Los Angeles. They could be appointed to be diocesan bishops elsewhere, you know. Um, so there's so, no problem for that. And so if they're, if they're able to be appointed as diocesan bishops elsewhere, then they, they would also qualify to be appointed as the diocesan bishop of Cairo and Alexandria, which is essentially what the Pope is, the, the patriarch is. Okay. Oh, so I didn't know that. I, I thought auxiliary bishops were, uh, is that, is that another word for Cori General Episcopos? Is, so is, it is just means they're thing? an assistant to right. so, so they're, a they're diocesan not, bishop. They're not married to the diocese? No. 
Oh, interesting. They, 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 they assist. They, they, they could be. So, because uh, that is an ancient uh, uh, yes office, right? That that sure. that's existed before. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so even I think people didn't quite understand that in the in the you know the the patriarch is a diocesan bishop. He is the diocesan bishop for Alexandria and then later Cairo. And so the the general bishops, because the diocese of the patriarch is so big, are essentially assistants in that diocese. Um, that's why they they and traditionally they belonged to the patriarch, not because all general bishops are under the patriarch, but because the general bishops that existed at the time, let's say of Pope Shenouda, were all appointed to be sort of his assistants to help manage the diocese of Alexandria and Cairo. It sort of extended beyond that, obviously, to anything that related to the patriarch. But, uh, you know, our two diocese, uh, our two auxiliary bishops, you know, are, their scope is limited to just this diocese. You know, they, they are assistant to his eminence, Metropolitan Serapion, you know, mm-hmm. they have no ability to serve in any other capacity outside of that, you know, um, so I guess I guess one 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 criticism of the the general bishop um, office is that essentially you can circumvent these um, jurisdictions, these geographical jurisdictions, and the authority of the bishop within his uh, jurisdiction by just creating office after office to promote your agenda. And I hate to use this kind of political language, but, you know, Stacking we, we can't, es- we can't escape reality where, uh, you, you know, you even mentioned it prior to Pope Carolus the sixth. I mean, the church was wrought with this kind of campaigning and influence and, sure. you know, different allegiances. So um, is there anything currently limiting, like how, how many uh, general bishop, different like kind of functions, education, uh, whatever else. Uh, is there anything limiting that, or can you know a pope theoretically just keep on creating different <laughs> different yeah. functions? Uh, no, it's it's a it's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, mm-hmm. clearly, um, in the days of uh, Saint Pope Carolus the Sixth, you know there was uh, very few uh, general bishops. Um, that, of course, expanded tremendously under uh, Pope Shenouda III, of blessed memory. Um, and, and so I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if there are any sort of um, ancient or more contemporary canons of the Coptic Orthodox Church that sort of limit, um, you know, the mm-hmm. patriarch's ability to assign, you know, uh, or to ordain, consecrate more general or auxiliary bishops sort of as yeah. needed you know i, I don't know mm-hmm. uh, what, what was saint pope carolus the sixth's relationship with uh, bishop shenouda at the time and, and uh, during i his think life? that the best um source for that that we have in english is of course the um the biography the the more recent biography by father daniel fanus on um on the life of St. Pope Carolus VI. And I think in that work, you know, there's, he goes into a lot more depth and detail into that relationship. And I think it, it was a relationship that was, you know, um, both uh, full of affection and respect and uh, cooperation, but also at times there was, uh, it was a rocky relationship, you know, and mm-hmm. they had some differences and there were moments where I think, and I think people are surprised by, by that, although I don't really think they should be surprised. I mean, you know, um, in any, in any um, institution, including the church, where you have, you know, people who have a vision, you know, at times those visions are going to clash and, uh, but I think hopefully we can see the good intention. You know, I mean, you, you take a parish, a, par- a large parish that has four priests, five priests, three priests. And, and sometimes people are surprised when they hear that, oh, you know, this priest and this priest, uh, you know, we're disagreeing about something or, you know, we're you know, a little bit tense with each other. And that doesn't mean there's a lack of love or lack of respect. It could simply mean that they're both very zealous for the, you know, the, the direction that they see the parish going in or how to serve the Lord the best way. And 
And at times they're going to have some divergence on that and they're humans, you know, but at the end, you know, uh, hopefully love reigns and, and, um, and, you know, people are able to put aside their, their personal egos, um, and sort of selfish ambitions and really focus on the wider, you know, more important goals of serving the Lord and, and, and his church and his flock. So I think, I think, you know, again, I, uh, without sort of, you know, being able to go into the details of it, I think it was a very good and strong relationship at times. And there were also times where it was a, a rocky relationship. And there was, there was a time where, you know, there, um, St. Pope the Sixth, you know, sort of disciplined, um, Bishop Shenouda, um, you know, for some, mm-hmm. um, things that happened, um, which again, I think it shouldn't be too much of a surprise, um, to us. Um, one thing that is, uh, one of the many things that is quite unique about Pope Carlos VI was that he really did let a lot of things roll off his back, a lot of criticisms, uh, a lot of dissent, um, you know, you can tell many more stories about the priests who were writing negative articles sure. about him, uh, the people who protested when he took their priest away, even though he had a good reason, but wouldn't, wouldn't share it. Um, is there, are there examples where he just uh, simply wouldn't tolerate that kind of criticism and, and, and why, and why, and why, why did he, why, why didn't he, um, kind of quote unquote defend himself or um, what do you, I mean, cause this, this kind of a, you know, probably something we don't look uh, admirably at now, you know, just kind of letting criticism go unaddressed right now. If anyone says anything, you have to, you know, clap back. You got to, you know, send a tweet response. You got to do this. You got to do that. And he, he seemed to kind of, um, let things go and, and, and sure. Uh, I, yeah, so. I think, I think, you know, there, the, you mentioned the story of the, the 12 priests who were writing um, articles and being very critical against him for, I think, 18 months, you know, before they sort of um, repented. Um, there's also the, the story of the, one of the abbots of St. Anthony's monastery, who was also, um, you know, spreading um, sort of uh, false allegations and criticisms of the Pope. And there are many um, examples of newspaper articles that were written that were very derogatory towards the Pope. And in almost all of those cases, you know, he, he just exemplified this beautiful virtue of meekness. You know, meekness is, is not a cowardice, you know, it's not weakness but it's, it's restraint, you know, it's, it's, it's somebody who is so strong that they're able to restrain themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's one of those quality. It's one of the, the only times that Christ asked us to imitate him, you know, was to be meek and lowly of heart like he is. And, and so that virtue of meekness is something that I think the saint, um, you know, worked very hard, you know, uh, in his ascetical efforts in his prayer life to achieve, you know, that restraint, you know, through love, through forgiveness. Um, it's not just that, it's not just that he exercised restraint, but, but even after, you know, 18 months where these priests were, um, you know, uh, bashing his name, you know, throughout, uh, you know, Egypt, when the priest says, you know, will you forgive me? In, a, in an instant, you know, the, the Pope responds and he says, with all my heart, my son, I absolve you. Mm-hmm. He says, well, if I bring my, my fellow priests, will you also absolve them? He says, with all my heart, bring them, I will absolve them all. So his, his, his forgiveness was immediate. His, his love was unconditional. Um, now, does that mean that he didn't struggle within himself? At times, of course, I'm sure, you know, he, he you know, there's one story of um, one of these newspaper articles that wrote, um, against some derogatory, you know, commentaries about him, 
for accusations about mishandling of funds. And the editor contacted the patriarch and offered him to write a sort of rebuttal, you know, and that they would publish it. And so he was, he was thinking of doing that. And he went to his disciple and he told them, you know, the editor is allowing me to publish a response. And his disciple looked at him and said, your holiness, since when do you defend yourself? <laughs> and he said, you're right. You know, so there was a moment there where he was going to defend himself, you know, mm -hmm. and he, he was even open to being sort of corrected by his disciple, you know, to choose the, the higher path. And again, that's, I think, the beauty of his spirit, um, that meekness, that, that immediate forgiveness, that unconditional love. Um, you know, it's really remarkable in his life. It's, it's one of those features that stands out over and over again. One thing I like about that aspect of his personality is that I think that I think there's a virtue in allowing for dissent. I think nowadays it almost feels like you, you can't question anything that uh, the hierarch um, says or does, and you just have to essentially just be obedient to it. Uh, I'm not advocating for disobedience, but merely voicing um, your opinion on a matter, it seems... Um, it doesn't seem welcome uh, too much right now in the church. And I mean, I can just, you know, give you examples of just, um, you know, everything that's going on nowadays, right? Should the church uh, require masking? Should the church yada, yada, you know, it's almost like this is the decree from above. Uh, take it or leave it. Don't come to church if you don't want to abide by this. It's almost like we've gone to maybe a, another extreme where we don't, we don't, take any dissent at all and you know just be obedient if you're not then um you know you're, you're going to be frowned upon uh, uh i mean i think again that's why we have saints right we have saints to sort of um guide us and and help us to recover that spirit of christ that that mm -hmm. we all need whether we're clergy or lay people we all we all need to be reminded of of those virtues that we have to sort of reorient ourselves towards on a regular basis. You know, one of the beautiful things that um, Father Rafael of Amina relates um, in his experience with the, with the saint is that, you know, the, he, the, he received many, many letters that were very critical towards the Pope, you know, and, and um, complaints. And he would try to hide those letters from the Pope's eyes. And he would oftentimes, you know, stuff them in a drawer somewhere or before he could sort of, you know, um, throw them away and you know the pope would know about them and say take them out and read them one by one mm -hmm. you know he would insist to hear mm. um you know he 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 sort of used that as a, as a as a means of humbling himself you know he, he didn't want to just be puffed up by everybody around him but he wanted right. dissent he wanted right. you know and i think even you find that some of the people that were critical of him from the um his his brother bishops um, or monks that, you know, um, he, uh, that gave him a hard time. These were the, the very people that he promoted, you know, or the very people that he put in very important positions. So he wasn't even afraid to take some of his previous adversaries and, mm -hmm. you know, um, advance their, elevate sorry, their them. clerical, yeah, elevate them yeah. or advance mm -hmm. their, their, their influence in the church. Mm -hmm. So he, he also sort of insisted to surround himself by, by people that would challenge him. You made a promise uh, to St. Pope Carolus VI to make his name known uh, in this generation. What, what's next for you? Do you have any <laughs> projects that you're going to work on or, 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 or work towards to, to make good you know, on that promise? Uh, this book's, I, this book's I, uh, already a great, you know, already great. I didn't really know much, much about Pope Carolus and, and these stories before reading it. So I think mission already accomplished, but I'm sure you have more ambitions. Honestly, I, I don't have anything in my heart, in my mind right now. Um, I never actually anticipated that I would, um, you know, publish a, a book. Um, I thought it would sort of just be, you know, me sharing these stories on Facebook and social media and telling them in homilies and talks and, you know, at conferences and retreats. And that's really the extent that I thought um, that I would be able to influence, you know, mm -hmm. or have meet that objective. So, so this, this, this book is, is, is sort of stretching myself beyond what I thought I was, you know, um, gifted to do. Um, so I don't really have any, 
additional plans right now. I think I'm, um, you know, I'll, I'll wait and see if obviously, you know, the Lord sort of inspires me to, to do something else or and ask to under obedience. <laughs> but, well, maybe he'll inspire you through me. I have two ideas for you. Okay. One, sure. I th- one, one, I think immediately you can, you can turn this into a, a an, an audio book. I don't know if you've thought that has been that. recommended before. Yeah, so yes, I, I'm very I, open to that idea. I think that's one. And, and then two, this is a bigger project, but the biopic of Pope Carlos's life that was, that was made in Egypt you know, the movie, I'm sure you've seen it, the old movie, mm-hmm. R- really touching, really moving, but I, I think it could use a, uh, a, a modern, a modern, a update. Facelift. yeah, a facelift, maybe without all the dramatic music in every scene, but, you know, maybe, maybe writing a script uh, for that movie. And I don't know, you kind of looked apart. So, you know, I don't know, maybe, <laughs> maybe doing a, an appearance yourself, but um, it, it reminds me, I know there's just a little funny story. Once I was visiting, you know, um, this lady that I mentioned, on Samira, um, you know, the last years of her life, she was very, she was very ill. So, um, you know, she was in and out of the hospital. And um, so one time I was sitting with her at the hospital and one of the nurses walked in and when, when Tansumi was at the hospital, the first thing she always took with her was a large picture of, of Pope Grulis that she would hang up on the wall in the hospital. So the, one of the nurses walked in and she saw me sitting, you know, talking to Tansumira and, and she just kept looking at me and then looking at the picture on the wall looking at me, looking at the picture, she's like, hey, you kind of look like him. So that was the first time that I, I said, that's the greatest compliment. Uh, I hope I can look like him in my heart. That's more important, obviously, that, and uh, I'm very far from that. But uh, There um, you go. There you go. I think she just cast you for the role. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, well, thanks so, so much. You pray for, for me time. and we'll see what uh, Yeah, what you pray for me. Pray for me. Th- thanks so much for your Bless time. You. This was really fun. And and uh, Thank you, Andrew. I, I hope we can it. meet in person soon.